0: Section 23 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 11, verses 38 to 46. Christ's words about the stone over the grave of Lazarus. Christ's words addressed to Martha when she doubted. Christ's words to God the Father. Christ's words addressed to Lazarus in his grave. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John chapter eleven verses thirty eight to forty six. Jesus therefore again groaning in himself cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Say I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe thou shouldst see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard thee. And I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus. Come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees, and told them what things Jesus had done. These verses record one of the greatest miracles the Lord Jesus Christ ever worked, and supply an unanswerable proof of his divinity. He whose voice could bring back from the grave one that had been four days dead must indeed have been very God. The miracle itself is described in such simple language that no human comment can throw light upon it, but the sayings of our Lord on this occasion are peculiarly interesting and demand special notice. We should mark, first, our Lord's words about the stone which lay upon the grave of Lazarus. We read that he said to those around him, when he came to the place of burial, Take ye away the stone. Now why did our Lord say this? It was doubtless as easy for him to command the stone to roll away untouched as to call a dead body from the tomb. But such was not his mode of proceeding. Here, as in other cases, he chose to give man something to do. Here, as elsewhere, he taught the great lesson that his almighty power was not meant to destroy man's responsibility. Even when he was ready and willing to raise the dead, he would not have man stand by altogether idle. Let us treasure up this in our memories. It involves a point of great importance. In doing spiritual good to others, in training up our children for heaven, in following after holiness in our own daily walk, In all these things it is undoubtedly true that we are weak and helpless. Without Christ we can do nothing. But still we must remember that Christ expects us to do what we can. Take ye away the stone is the daily command which he gives us. Let us beware that we do not stand still in idleness under the pretense of humility. Let us daily try to do what we can, and in the trying Christ will meet us and grant his blessing. We should mark, secondly, the words which our Lord addressed to Martha when she objected to the stone being removed from the grave. The faith of this holy woman completely broke down, when the cave where her beloved brother lay was about to be thrown open. She could not believe that it was of any use. "'Lord,' she cries, "'by this time he stinketh,' and then comes in the solemn reproof of our Lord. "'Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God?' That sentence is rich in meaning. It is far from unlikely that it contains a reference to the message which had been sent to Martha and Mary when their brother first fell sick. It may be meant to remind Martha that her master had sent her word. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. But it is perhaps more likely that our Lord desired to recall to Martha's mind the old lesson he had taught her all through his ministry, the duty of always believing, It is as though he said, Martha, Martha, thou art forgetting the great doctrine of faith, which I have ever taught thee. Believe, and all will be well. Fear not, only believe. The lesson is one which we can never know too well. How apt our faith is to break down in time of trial. How easy it is to talk of faith in the days of health and prosperity, and how hard to practice it in the days of darkness, when neither sun, moon, nor stars appear let us lay to heart what our Lord says in this place. Let us pray for such stores of inward faith that when our turn comes to suffer, we may suffer patiently and believe all is well. The Christian who has ceased to say, I must see, and then I will believe, and has learned to say, I believe, and by and by I shall see, has reached a high degree in the school of Christ. We should mark, thirdly, the words which our Lord addressed to God the Father when the stone was taken from the grave. We read that he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. This wonderful language is totally unlike anything said by prophets or apostles when they worked miracles. In fact, it is not a prayer, but praise. It evidently implies a constant, mysterious communion going on between Jesus and his Father in heaven, which is past the power of man either to explain or conceive. We need not doubt that here, as elsewhere in St. John, our Lord meant to teach the Jews the entire and complete unity there was between him and his Father, in all that he did, as well as in all that he taught. Once more he would remind them that he did not come among them as a mere prophet, but as the Messiah, who was sent by the Father, and who was one with the Father. Once more he would have them know that as the words which he spake were the very words which the Father gave him to speak, so the works which he wrought were the very works which the Father gave him to do. In short, he was the promised Messiah, whom the Father always hears, because he and the Father are one. Deep and high as this truth is, It is for the peace of our souls to believe it thoroughly and to grasp it tightly. Let it be a subtle principle of our religion that the Savior in whom we trust is nothing less than eternal God, one whom the Father hears always, one who in very deed is God's fellow. A clear view of the dignity of our mediator's person is one secret of inward comfort. Happy is he who can say, I know whom I have believed, and that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. Second Timothy chapter one verse twelve. We should mark lastly the words which our Lord addressed to Lazarus when he raised him from the grave. We read that he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. At the sound of that voice, the king of terrors at once yielded up his lawful captive, and the insatiable grave gave up its prey. At once he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. The greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here, in open day and before many hostile witnesses, a man, four days dead, was restored to life in a moment. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power over the material world. A corpse, already corrupt, was made alive. Here was public proof that our Lord had absolute power. Over the world of spirits a soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from paradise and joined once more to its owner's body well may the church of christ maintain that he who could work such works was god over all blessed for ever. romans chapter 9 verse 5 let us turn from the whole passage with thoughts of comfort and consolation comfortable is the thought that the loving savior of sinners on whose mercy our souls entirely depend is one who has all power in heaven and earth, and is mighty to save. Comfortable is the thought that there is no sinner too far gone in sin for Christ to raise and convert. He that stood by the grave of Lazarus can say to the vilest of men, Come forth, loose him, and let him go. Comfortable, not least, is the thought that when we ourselves lie down in the grave, we may lie down in the full assurance that we will rise again. The voice that called Lazarus forth will one day pierce our tombs and bid our soul and body come together. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. Notes. John chapter 11, verses 38 to 46. Verse 38. Jesus, groaning, cometh grave. The word here rendered, groaning, is the same that was used at the 32nd verse, and the same remarks apply to it. The only difference is that here it is groaning in himself, and there groaning in the spirit. This, however, confirms my impression that in the former verse, in the spirit, simply means inwardly and spiritually, and that the general idea is under the influence of very strong inward emotion. The situation of the grave, we need not doubt, was outside the village of Bethany, there was no such thing as interment within a town allowed among the Jews, or indeed among ancient nations generally. The practice of burying the dead among the living is a barbarous modern innovation, reflecting little credit on Christians. Calvin remarks, Christ approaches the sepulchre as a champion preparing for contest, and we need not wonder that he groans as the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. Echolampadius and Muscullus think that the unbelieving, sneering remark of the Jews in the preceding verse is the reason why our Lord again groaned. Bullinger thinks that the renewed emotion of our Lord was simply occasioned by the sight of the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Graves among the Jews seem to have been of three kinds. One, sometimes, but rarely, they were holes dug down into the ground like our own, See Luke chapter 11, verse 44. 2. Most frequently they were caves hewn horizontally into the side of a rock, with a stone placed against the mouth. This was most probably the kind of new tomb in which our Lord was laid. 3. Sometimes they were caves, in which there was a sloping downward descent. This appears to have been the description of the grave in which Lazarus was buried. It says distinctly that a stone lay upon it. No doubt these particulars are specified to supply incidental proof of the reality of Lazarus's death and burial. Verse 39. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. The expression here conveys the idea of lifting up to take away. It is the same word that is rendered lifted up in the 41st verse. The use of this word greatly strengthens the idea that the grave was a descending cave and not a horizontal one when our lord rose again the stone was rolled away from the door and not lifted up matthew chapter 28 verse 2 by calling on the crowd of attendants to take away the stone our lord effected two things firstly he impressed on the mind of all engaged the reality and truth of the miracle he was about to perform everyone who lent a hand to lift the huge stone and remove it would remember it and become a witness he would be able to say I myself helped to lift up the stone. I myself am sure there was no imposture. There was a dead body inside the grave. In fact, we cannot doubt that the smell rising from the bottom of the cave would tell anyone who helped lift the stone what there was there. Secondly, our Lord teaches us the simple lesson that he would have man do what he can. Man cannot raise the soul and give life, but he can often remove the stone. Flacius points out the likeness between this command and the command at Cana to fill the water pots with water, John chapter 2, verse 7. That the stones placed at the mouth of graves in Palestine were very large and not easily moved, we may see from Mark, chapter 16, verse 3. Martha, the sister of him, etc., etc. This is a remarkable sentence and teaches several important things. a. It certifies for the last time the reality of Lazarus's death. He was not in a swoon or trance. His own sister, who had doubtless seen him die and closed his eyes, declares before the crowd of onlookers that Lazarus has been dead four days and was fast going to corruption. This we may well believe in such a climate as that of Palestine. b. It proves, beyond a reasonable doubt, that there was no imposture, no collusion, no concerted deception, arranged between the family of Bethany and our Lord. Here is the sister of Lazarus actually questioning the propriety of our Lord's order and publicly saying, in effect, that it is no use to move the stone, that nothing can now be done to deliver her brother from the power of death. Like the eleven apostles, after Jesus himself rose, Martha was not a willing and prepared witness, but a resisting and unwilling one. C. It teaches, not least— how much unbelief there is in a believer's heart at the bottom. Here is holy Martha, with all her faith in our Lord's Messiahship, shrinking and breaking down at the most critical point. She cannot believe that there is any use in removing the stone. She suggests, impulsively and anxiously, her doubt whether our Lord remembers how long her brother has been dead. It is not for nothing that we are specially told it was Martha, the sister of him that was dead, who said this. If even she could say this and raise objections, the idea of imposture and deception becomes absurd. Some writers object to putting the full literal meaning on the Greek word rendered stinketh, but I can see nothing in the objection. We need no support that the body of Lazarus was different to other bodies. Moreover, it was just as easy to our Lord to raise a corpse four days dead as one only four hours dead. In either case, the grand difficulty to be overcome would be the same— viz. to change death into life. Indeed, it is worth considering whether this fact about Lazarus is not specially mentioned in order to show our Lord's power to restore man's corrupt and decayed body at the last day, and to make it a glorious body. Let us note here what a humbling lesson death teaches. So terrible and painful is the corruption of a body, when the breath leaves it, that even those who love us most are glad to bury us out of sight. Genesis chapter 23, verse 4. Musculnus suggests that Martha had so little idea what our Lord was going to do that she supposed he only wanted to see Lazarus' face once more. This is perhaps going too far. The Greek for dead four days is a singular expression and one that cannot be literally rendered in English. It would be, he is a person of four days, and it may possibly mean, he has been buried four days. Raphelus gives examples from Herodotus, and Xenophon, which make it possible that it means either dead or buried. Lightfoot mentions a very curious tradition of the Jews. They say that after death the spirit hovers around the sepulchre, waiting to see if it may return to the body, but when it sees the look on the face of the corpse changed, then it hovers no more, but leaves the body to itself. He also adds, They do not certify of the dead, except within three days after decease, for after three days the countenance changes. Verse 40. Jesus saith, Said I not, etc. This gentle but firm reproof is remarkable. It is not clear to what our Lord refers in the words, Said I not. A. Some think, as Rupertus, that he refers to the message he sent at the beginning, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. B. Some think that he refers to the conversation he had with Martha when she first met him outside Bethany. C. Some think that he refers to words he had often used in discoursing with Martha and Mary on former occasions. The point is one which must be left open, as we have no means of settling it. My own impression is that there is probably a reference to the message which our Lord sent back to the sisters at first when Lazarus was sick. I fancy there must have been something more said at that time which was not recorded, and that our Lord reminded Martha of this. At the same time, I cannot doubt that our Lord constantly taught the family of Bethany and all his disciples that believing is the grand secret of seeing God's glorious works. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. He did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Mark chapter nine verse twenty three, Matthew chapter thirteen verse fifty eight. Unbelief, in a certain sense, seems to tie the hands and limit the power of omnipotence. Let us note that if we would see much, we must first believe. Man's natural idea is just the reverse. He would first see and then believe. Let us note that even the best believers need reminding of Christ's sayings and are apt to forget them. Said I not unto thee, it is a little sentence that we should often call to mind. Verse 41. Then they took away stone laid. Martha's interruption seems to me to have caused a little pause in the proceedings. She being the nearest relative of Lazarus, and having probably arranged everything concerning his burial, and provided his tomb, we may well believe that her speech made the bystanders hesitate to move the stone. When, however, they heard our Lord's solemn reply, and observed that she was silenced, and made no further objection, then, they proceeded to do what our Lord desired. Hall remarks, They that laid their hands to the stones doubtless held still a while, when Martha spoke, and looked one while on Christ, another while on Martha, to hear what issue of resolution would follow so important an objection. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, We now reach a point of thrilling and breathless interest. The stone had been removed from the mouth of the cave. Our Lord stands before the open grave, and the crowd stands around, awaiting anxiously to see what would happen next. Nothing appears from the tomb. There's no sign of life at present. But while all are eagerly looking and listening, our Lord addressed his Father in heaven in a most solemn manner, lifting up his eyes and speaking audibly to him in the hearing of all the crowd. The reason he explains in the next verse, Now for the last time, about to work his mightiest miracle— he once more makes a public declaration that he did nothing separate from his Father in heaven and that in this and all his works there is a mysterious and intimate union between himself and the Father. We should note how he suits the action to the word. He lifted up his eyes. Compare John chapter 17, verse 1. He showed that he was addressing an unseen Father in heaven. Father, I thank Thee that Thou hast heard me. This is a remarkable expression. Our Lord begins with, Thanks, when man would have expected him to offer prayer. How shall we explain it? A. Some think that our Lord refers to prayer he had put up to the Father concerning the death of Lazarus from the moment that he heard of his illness, and to his present firm conviction that those prayers had been heard and were going to receive a public answer. B. Others think that there is no reason to suppose that our Lord refers to any former and remote prayer that there was a constant, hourly, minutely communication between himself and his heavenly Father, and that to pray and return thanks for the answer to prayer were actions which in his experience were very closely connected. The subject is a deep and mysterious one, and I shrink from giving a very positive opinion about it, that our Lord constantly prayed on all occasions, we know from the Gospels, that he prayed sometimes with great agony of mind and with tears, we also know, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 but how far he could know anything of that peculiar struggle which we poor sinners have to carry on with doubt fear and anxiety in our prayers is another question altogether and very hard to answer one might suppose that he who was as man entirely holy humble and without sin might be able to thank for prayer heard almost as soon as prayer was offered upon this theory the sentence before us would be plain I pray that Lazarus may be raised, and I thank Thee at the same time for hearing my prayer, as I know Thou dost. And yet we must not forget two of our Lord's prayers not granted, apparently. Father, save me from this hour. Father, let this cup pass from me. John chapter 12, verse 47, and Mark chapter 26, verse 29. It is, however, only fair to say that the first of these prayers is greatly qualified by the context, and the second by the words, if it be possible. We may note here, as elsewhere, what an example of thankfulness, as well as prayerfulness, our Lord always supplies. Well, if it was followed. His people are always more ready to ask than to thank. The more grace in the heart, the more humility, and the more humility, the more praise. Chrysostom remarks, Who now ever prayed in this manner? Before uttering any prayer, he saith, I thank thee, showing that he needed not prayer, He also says that the real cause of our Lord saying this was to show the Jews he was no enemy of God, but did all his works according to his will. Origen observes, If to those who pray worthily is given the promise in Isaiah, Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. What answer, think we, could our Lord receive? He was about to pray for the restoration of Lazarus. He was heard by the Father before he prayed. His request was granted before it was made— and therefore he begins with thanks. Musculus, Flacius, and Glacius think that our Lord refers to prayer he had been putting up secretly when he was groaning in spirit and troubled, and that he was then wrestling and agonizing in prayer, though those around him knew it not. We may remember that at the red sea we are not told of any audible prayer Moses offered, and yet the Lord says, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Exodus chapter fourteen verse fifteen. Quisnell observes, Christ, being about to conclude his public life and preaching by the last and most illustrious of his miracles, returns solemn thanks to his Father for the power given to his human nature to prove the authority of his mission by miracles. Hall observes, words express our hearts to men, thoughts to God. Well dost thou know, Lord, out of the self-sameness of thy will with the Father's, that thou didst but think in thy heart that Lazarus should rise. He now was raised. It was not for thee to pray vocally and audibly, lest these capacious hearers should say, Thou didst all by entreaty and nothing by power. Verse 42. And I knew that thou hearest, etc. This verse is so elliptical that the meaning can hardly be seen without a paraphrase. I do not give thee these thanks, as if I had ever doubted thy willingness to hear me, On the contrary, I know well that thou always hearest me. Thou dost not only hear all my prayers as man, both for myself and for my people. Thou dost also ever hear me, even as I hear thee, from the mystical union there is between the Father and the Son. But I have now said this publicly for the benefit of this crowd of people standing by the grave, in order that they may see and believe for the last time that I do no miracle without thee, and that I am the Messiah whom thou hast sent into the world. I would have them publicly hear me declare that I work this last great work as thy sent one, and as a last evidence that I am the Christ. I cannot but think there is a deep meaning about the expression, thou hearest me always, compared John chapter 5 verse 30, but I admit the difficulty of the phrase and would speak with diffidence. It is impossible to imagine a more thorough open challenge to the attention of the Jews than the language which precedes the raising of Lazarus. Before doing this stupendous work, our Lord proclaims that he is doing and speaking as he does to supply a proof that the Father sent and commissioned him as the Christ. Was he the sent one or not? This, we must always remember, was the great question of which he undertook to give proof. The Jews, moreover, said that he did his miracles by Beelzebub. Let them hear that he did all by the power of God. Bullinger remarks that our Lord seems to say, The Jews do not all understand that union and community between me and thee, by which we are of the same will, power, and substance. Some of them even think that I work by the power of the devil. Therefore, that all may believe that I come from thee, am sent by thee, am thy son, equal to thee, light of light, very God of very God. I use expressions of this sort. Poole remarks, There's a great difference between God's hearing of Christ and hearing us. Christ and his Father have one essence, one nature, and one will. The following miracles were wrought by Christ without audible prayer and with only an authoritative word Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 6, Mark chapter 5, verse 41, chapter 9, verse 25, Luke chapter 7, verse 14. Wordsworth observes, Christ prayed to show that he was not against God, nor God against him, and that what he did was done with God's approval. Verse 43, And when, cried, came forth. In this verse we have the last and crowning stage of the miracle. Attention was concentrated on the grave and our Lord. The crowd looked on with breathless expectation. And then, while they looked, having secured their attention, our lord bids Lazarus come forth out of the grave the greek word for he cried is only in this place applied to any voice or utterance of our lord in matthew chapter 12 verse 19 it is used where it is said of our lord he shall not cry here it is evident that he purposefully used a very loud piercing cry that all around might hear and take notice theophylact thinks that jesus cried aloud to contradict the gentile fable that the soul remained in the tomb with the body. Therefore the soul of Lazarus is called to as if it were absent, and a loud voice were necessary to summon it back. Euthymius suggests the same reason. This, however, seems an odd idea. On the other hand, Brentius, Grotius, and Lamp suggest that Jesus cried with a loud voice to prevent the Jews from saying that he muttered or whispered some magical form or words of enchantment, as witches did. Ferris observes that our Lord did not say, In the name of my Father come forth, or raise him on my Father, but acts by his own authority. Verse 44 And he that was dead came forth. The effect of our Lord's words was seen at once. As soon as he cried, Lazarus was seen coming up out of the cave before the eyes of the crowd. A more plain, distinct, and unmistakable miracle it would be impossible for man to imagine. That a dead man should hear a voice, obey it, rise up, and move forth from his grave alive is utterly contrary to nature. God alone could cause such a thing. What first began life in him, how lungs and heart began to act again, suddenly and instantaneously, it would be a waste of time to speculate. It was a miracle, and we must leave it. The idea of some that Lazarus moved out of the grave without the use of his legs, passing through the air like a spirit or ghost seems to me needless and unreasonable. I agree with Hutchinson, Hall, and Pierce that, though bound hand and foot, there is no certain proof that his legs were tied together so tightly that he could not move out of the grave, though slowly and with difficulty like one encumbered on his own feet. The tardy, shuffling action of such a figure would strike all. Pierce remarks, "'He must have come forth crawling on his knees. We are surely not required to multiply miracles,' Yet the idea that Lazarus came out with a supernatural motion seems to be held by Augustine, Zwingle, Echolampadius, Beer, Galter, Toletus, Jensenius, Lamp, Lightfoot, and Alford, who think it part of the miracle. I would not press my opinion positively on others, though I firmly maintain it. My own private feeling is that the slow, gradual, tottering movements of a figure encumbered by grave clothes would impress a crowd far more than the rapid, ghost-like gliding out of the air of a body— of which the feet did not move. His face bound about, napkin. This is mentioned to show that he had been really dead, and his corpse treated like all other corpses. If not dead, he would have been unable to breathe through the napkin for four days. Jesus saith, Loose him, let him go. This command was given for two reasons. Partly that many around might touch Lazarus and see for themselves that it was not a ghost, but a real body that was raised partly that he might be able to walk to his own house before the eyes of the multitude as a living man. This, until he was freed from grave clothes and his eyes were unbandaged, would have been impossible. Very striking it is to remark how in the least minute particulars the objections of infidels and skeptics are quietly forestalled and met in gospel narrative. Thus Chrysostom remarks that the command to loose him would enable the friends who bore Lazarus to the grave to know from the grave clothes that it was the very person they had buried four days before. They would recognize the clothes. They could not say, as some had said in the case of the blind man, this is not he. He also remarks that both hands, eyes, ears, and nostrils would all convince the witnesses of the truth of the miracles. Verse 45. Then many of the Jews believed on him. This verse describes the good effect which the raising of Lazarus had on many of the Jews who had come from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. Their remaining prejudices gave way. They were unable to resist the extraordinary evidence of the miracle they had just seen. From that day they no longer denied that Jesus was the Christ. Whether their belief was faith unto salvation may well be doubted, but at any rate they ceased to oppose and blaspheme. And it is much more probable that on the day of Pentecost, many of those very Jews, whose hearts had been prepared by the miracle of Bethany, came boldly forward and were baptized. We should observe in this verse what a signal blessing God was pleased to bestow on sympathy and kindness. If the Jews had not come to comfort Mary under her affliction, they would not have seen the mighty miracle of raising Lazarus and perhaps would not have been saved. Lamp remarks on these Jews, They had come as the merciful, and they obtained mercy. Besner observes the beautiful delicacy with which St. John draws a veil over the effect on Martha and Mary of this miracle while he dwells on the effect it had on strangers. Verse 46. But some of them went, Pharisees, etc. We see in this verse the bad effect which the raising of Lazarus had on some who saw it. Instead of being softened and convinced, they were hardened and enraged. They were vexed to see even more unanswerable proofs that Jesus was the Christ, and irritated to feel that their own unbelief was more than ever inexcusable. They therefore hurried off to the Pharisees to report what they had seen and to point out the progress that our Lord was making in the immediate neighborhood of Jerusalem. The amazing wickedness of human nature is strikingly illustrated in this verse. There is no greater mistake than to suppose that seeing miracles will necessarily convert souls. Here is a plain proof that it does not. Never was there more remarkable confirmation of our Lord's words in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If they believed not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Muscullus observes what a wonderful example we have here of the sovereign grace of God, choosing some and leading them to repentance and faith, and not choosing others. Here is the same miracle, seen under the same circumstances and with the same evidence, by a large crowd of persons— yet while some believe, others believe not. It is like the case of the two thieves on the cross, both seeing the same sight, one repenting and the other impenitent. The same fire, which melts wax, hardens clay. In leaving this wonderful miracle, there are three things which demand special notice. a. We should observe that we are not told of anything that Lazarus said about his state while in the grave, and nothing of his after-history. Tradition says that he lived for 30 years after and was never known to smile, but this is probably a mere apocryphal invention. As to his silence, we can easily see that there is a divine wisdom about it. If St. Paul could not utter the things that he saw in the third heaven and called them unspeakable things, it is not strange that Lazarus should say nothing of what he saw in paradise. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4 but there may be always seen in Scripture a striking silence about the feelings about men and women who have been the subjects of remarkable divine interposition. God's ways are not man's ways. Man loves sensation and excitement and likes to make God's work on his fellow creatures a gazing stock and a show to their great damage. God almost always seems to withdraw them from the public, both for their own good and his glory. B. We should observe that we are told nothing of the feelings of Martha and Mary after they saw their brother raised to life. The veil is drawn over their joy, though it was not over their sorrow. Affliction is a more profitable study than rejoicing. C. We should observe, lastly, that the raising of Lazarus is one of the most signal instances in the gospel of Christ's divine power. To him who could work such a miracle, nothing is impossible— He can raise from the death of sin any dead soul, however far gone and corrupt. He will raise us from the grave at his own second appearing. The voice which called Lazarus from the tomb is almighty. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they that hear shall live. John chapter 5, verse 25. End of section 23.